Texas talking oh, What was that that you said? Texas talking oh, Gonna hoop up inside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas calls Hello and welcome to the Tribcast. I'm Robert Schenken, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the hit play All the Way. This is Ambassador Lindman Olson in Waco, Texas. This is State Senator Leticia Vanderpute. This is Steve Ministeri, Chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. I'm Vince Young. Hi, Phil Collins here. This is Kay Bailey Hutchison. This is Chris Hayes, host of All In with Chris Hayes. Hello, this is George P. Bush, your next Texas Land Commissioner. Uh, you're listening to the Tribcast. But when I want to listen to some real political theater, the absurd Texas style, I tune in to the Texas Tribune Tribcast. Tribcast, I want you to know, is a huge hit in Sweden, and we hope you enjoy Reeve. Here's your host, Reeve Hamilton. Hello, and welcome to our Year in Review Tribcast, and thanks to all the big names who recorded introductions for us this year. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton. We're going to do something special this time around. We're going to revisit our best live shows. If you listen, you know we record most episodes in our studios in Austin, but every now and then we like to get out there among the people. For example, on the morning after the primaries in March, we recorded an episode at the Austin Club. I was joined on stage by Ross, Emily, Evan, and Morgan, among others. Let's listen in, starting with Morgan talking about the looming runoff between incumbent Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst and his challenger, State Senator Dan Patrick. I woke up this morning and hit refresh on the Secretary of State's website to see if Dewhurst had made it to 30% of the vote. He hasn't. Almost all the votes are in, still at 28%. Um, and I think that that's, that's, I think that comes as, I think we knew it was going to be a runoff. We knew it was going to be close, but I think that that is, uh, I think that's a surprise that he did do so poorly. Yeah, under 30. I mean, you know, I wonder if it, how many people in the camp are saying to him, are we, are we really going to go through with this? I have a much harder time believing that the Dewhurst campaign is having a serious conversation about him conceding than I do about the Hildebrand. I have no knowledge of this one way or the other, but if I, don't you think that Governor Dewhurst would be... I, don't, I, they're I think, not, they're I think not. most people that have a chance are not sitting around deciding to concede. At the yeah, moment. and I mean, you have to remember there is still Todd Stables got 18%, Jerry Patterson got 12%, that's 30%, that is up for grabs. But one or both of those guys may endorse Dewhurst. Right, and they both have had pretty tense relationship with, with Dan Patrick um, going into this. So, right. I, I mean, I think that. I mean, that's, I guess, a, a, a silver lining for the Dewhurst campaign. But there's still, I mean, anyway, you look at it, this is an incumbent that campaigned hard, was on the campaign trail, spent money, had more name ID than any of the other guys going in, and he still didn't make it to 30% of the vote. You know, I mean, we've, we've seen this movie before. We know what David Dewhurst is like in, in a runoff. I mean, and I think that even if all of those, let's just say all of the Staples voters and all the Patterson voters decide that they're going to jump behind uh, behind Dewhurst, you know, this is a runoff where not that many people turn out. Dan right. Patrick has clearly mobilized a lot more people than we thought he'd mobilized. Uh, I just, I don't really see a path forward. Well, I think, I mean, I think the play has to be that, um, you know, somehow the group of not Dan Patrick voters becomes larger than the group of not David Dewhurst voters. And right. I think that we haven't seen the kinds of attacks that are actually making traction with David, with uh, Dan Patrick. I, I, I know that the reports of hiring the 
undocumented workers came out a few days into early voting, and okay, maybe more people had cast their votes. Seemed, to have, have, seemed to have had no effect to at seep all. In, but I mean, yeah, and right. or Jerry Patterson's private eye was not very effective. <laughs> right. right. And I mean, maybe maybe there's more of that to come down the pipeline, but I think that. It's going to there's it's going to have to be some different kind of thing. Every every second place finisher in a case like this, when you ask them how are you going to come back and win in a runoff, they go oppo, oppo. <laughs> well, you know, there's an interesting thing right. here about about the synergy on the ticket. There's a bunch of runoffs in May. It's an unusual, you know, the the Cruz Dewhurst runoff was just two guys, and there wasn't any other reason to show up. We it was got July, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it was in yeah. July. Got plenty of plenty this of stuff. This one's the day after Memorial Day, which is inconvenient. But people are still in school. People haven't gone on vacation yet. And you have five statewide runoffs. So you right. so if you start looking at this ticket, if you were looking at the initial primary ticket, thirty-four Republicans in seven races, it's sort of like, you know, sort it out, find your you know, it's like go into the coat room and find your jacket. This one's pretty clean. This is five races, ten candidates, this group over here, this group over here, yep. this kind of Republican, that kind of Republican. Do yep. you get some synergy between Patrick, Paxton? As you go down the ballot, I'm assuming there's five, unless Hager finds 74 votes. I, th I think there's an interesting conversation about the lieutenant governor's race. It pivots off of what you said about the, where, what role, if any, the Staples and the, and the Patterson people have. You know, you're correct. There is antipathy, most definitely, between the Patterson end of this race and the Patrick end. Even between the Staples end and the Patrick end. The Staples campaign is going to have to figure out to do what they're going to do with all those Lieutenant Gobiner shirts that they had made up actually for this race. You know, the, the Staples people have been absolutely merciless in, in behind the scenes, picking at Patrick and picking at Patrick, right. and trying to, to to say everything nasty that they could about him. I can't believe that Staples now comes out all of a sudden and supports a, a, a Patrick. I Not mean, it would, it would seem out of character. On the other hand. Woe to the person who underestimates Dan Patrick. Remember, we all, many of us in this room, remember the Dan Patrick Senate race when, when there was going to be Senator Peggy Hamrick, measure the drapes. And Patrick came along and won that race without a runoff. I think Patrick has a lot more of fire and staying power than people give him credit for, and I think this is yet another piece of evidence of that. The fact that the Staples people and the Patterson people may not like Patrick is not a big surprise. I think you have to feel like Patrick is is in the driver's seat here. I, I don't know. I don't know how else to look at it. But that doesn't make it a done deal, does it? Right. No, it's not a done deal. But and I mean, Dan Pat Dan Patrick is going to have to raise more money to 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 stick around right. in the race. I mean, there's there, there's this power of the grassroots momentum, but David Dewhurst also has a lot of personal financial resources that he can put into this, and he said ha that hasn't that helped he him in previous cases. Well, like he came this. in late in this race. That was one of the interesting things about this, is he came in late in his advertising in this race. This wasn't, you know, the, you know, the hammer of Thor or anything. I mean, there wasn't, we weren't watching David Dewhurst wall-to-wall -wall ads, you know, like we were, I guess, in the cruise. So let's assume that he decides to spend a ton of money between, this is it, basically. His career, his political career is over if he loses this race. So let's assume he's in a fight for my life situation. And he gets blessing to spend, pick a number, $15 million between now and the end of May, some, some crazy amount of money. What is his case against Patrick? What's the case? It's, you, you know, you're right. It's oppo. It's gotta, What's gotta, the case? It's the tallest piece We've of heard about the vasectomy. We've heard about the bankruptcy. We've heard about the change in name. We've now heard about the alleged illegal immigrants that Patrick hired. Dan Patrick is like that operation game. As, I mean, the, the, there's no skin. There's no bones. 
it's open, man. That's it. What, I, I, what are you going to say about it? I don't, I don't know if uh, you've heard about that stuff. I'm not sure voters have heard about that stuff other than the uh, undocumented worker thing. That's the only thing that was if really big in the papers. If voters haven't heard about it by now, then the Staples-Patterson and Dewhurst campaigns ought to sue their consultants for malpractice. I know that none of the consultants could turn up the vasectomy tapes. You know, if Dan Patrick had a vasectomy on the radio, and nobody could find the audio. Maybe, maybe that's Jerry Patterson's private... Inspector's uh, right. yeah. project. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sort of new definition of private inspector, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, private's investigator. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Good you were that close. He's just that awake. <laughs> yeah, right. Of course, now we know that the runoff went very well for Dan Patrick, who in November became the lieutenant governor elect. We also did a show at the Austin Club in November after the general election. I was, once again, joined by Emily Ross and Evan, and this time Jay and others joined us as well. Here we are reviewing the extent of the Republican victories. The statewide executive and judicial swept again. They haven't lost a race since 1994. They uh, had a winning streak that goes all the way back to 1996. The only Democrat in statewide office was Larry Myers, who switched parties last year to run for the Texas Supreme Court. He got whomped. Um, the only swing district in the Texas congressional delegation went to a Republican. The only swing district in the Senate went to a Republican. Republicans picked up three seats in the Texas House, making their number now 98. I guess the, the hunt for flippers will be on to find two or three or four Democrats who might flip and make it a supermajority for the first time since six years, I think. Um, the Republicans broke through in Dallas County, which is one of the the blueberries in the tomato soup that we like to talk about. They want a countywide election for district attorney up there, in spite of the fact that the straight ticket voting in Dallas County makes up about 66% of the vote. So about two-thirds of the people who vote in Dallas County vote a straight ticket. About 55% of those vote for Democrats. And in spite of that, Susan Hawk is the new district attorney. So wouldn't you say, Ross, I wouldn't read a whole lot into that on the party stuff. I don't think the Democrat lost. I think Craig Watkins lost. Well, I think the point here is that, you know, the places that are really solidly one party or another, like the state, for example, if you're running for state office, you can yeah. do almost anything if you're flying under a red flag. You have an R next to your name. If you, right. It was the case that if you were flying under the blue flag in Dallas County, you could do almost anything. It turns out Craig Watkins uh, proved to be the exception of that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Democrats have busted through there. Uh, we were talking at the table a minute ago. You know, 2010 was a wave election with the Tea Party, and this is an affirmation of that election. And I, w I would say not just a Republican win, but, I mean, an, an overwhelming... I mean, even the numbers that we were projecting in the newsroom that we were talking about yesterday before the returns started coming in, you know, the Democrats ended up performing far worse than we even imagined they could possibly perform. Uh, so I think that was sort of the big takeaway looking at this night. You know, Wendy Davis not even cracking 39% as the numbers right. look right now. Worse than Tony Sanchez. Worse than Tony Sanchez. And her numbers were still better than all the other statewide Democrats who were running. So just, I mean, right. horrific not, performance. not significantly better than Jim Hogan, who made not a single phone call. And, Ju right. and Jim Hogan is correctly saying, I spent no money and did, a ba did basically the same as everybody. He's the Marty Akins of this race. No, right. Those, those last two points that she outperformed and cost $35 million. Right. Yeah, and he got to be home eating beef stew right now. When goat stew. Be, yeah. Was it goat? I'm goat? Not, pretty sure it was beef. beef. It, was, okay. it was very hard to tell. Look, the headline of last night is that Denton uh, voted to ban fracking and Texas voted to ban Democrats. Uh, 
there's, there's sort of no other way to, to distill down what happened yesterday except to say that it was every bit a disaster for Democrats with no good news. I, mean, I think the Bill White thing can be overplayed. Conditions in 2010 and conditions in 2014 are different. Six months ago, the discussion was if Wendy Davis wins, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. Then it became if Wendy Davis keeps this to a single-digit race, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. Then it became if Wendy Davis does better than Bill White, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. She has done eight points worse than Bill White, which I have to tell you, even the most depressed, cynical, downcast people would not have predicted so the, that mor- so the moral of that is don't play in the street or you'll get run over? No cartwheels, right. Exactly. Do you think Bill White uh, is doing cartwheels in the street now? Well, <laughs> it's a great day for Bill White. I mean, look, look she, lost, she, lost, she lost Harris County. She lost Bear County. She lost 10 counties that Bill White won. Right. She won 18 counties. Bill White won 28 counties right. in, uh, in, in 2010. She, she might still win 19. There was one gray that was not decided. But, but the Ross long, always finds the silver lining. But the longish, right. but the longish the tale of this is because the Davis campaign collapsed in Bear County and all Ultimately, Abbott won Bear County. Philip Cortez lost. And Pete Gallego lost. Now, you could say that even if Davis had won Bear County, Cortez would have kept, might have lost his house seat. Gallego might still have lost his, his congressional seat. But there's no question that there was a hope on the part of some Democrats as recently as yesterday afternoon that Van Depute and Davis, by extension, would do well in Bear County and pull some of those folks over the line. Or that Davis and Van Depute would do well in Harris County and pull Marianne Perez over the line. At the end of the day, their collapse had a longer tail and affected the rest of the results. It's just a ter- there's no way to spin it positively. Absolutely not. I do want to I want to ask about the infrastructure though. We had by way of Battleground Texas and by way of a lot of, you know, outside national cash, in theory all of this huge investment in in, you know, voter registration and voter turnout. So what happened? Well, Was that just entirely useless? Can I stop you there and bring up Jay Root to help oh, us sure. delve into this in topic? In order to answer that question, we bring you Yeah, this is Texas Tribune political reporter Jay Root. Uh, Jake, could you take a stab at that question? I'm not sure. Am I on here? Oh, You're as on as we want you to be. <laughs> can you hear me? Yes, that's now better, you can. Yes. Uh, bungle so, ground so, Texas. So what that's, that's what the Republicans are calling them now, bungle ground Texas. <laughs> I mean, this... Michael, Michael Quinn Sullivan on Twitter last night called them battle frown Texas. Uh, you know, this was a disaster for Battleground Texas. On Twitter. <laughs> this was a disaster for Battleground Texas, really. I mean, the uh, the turnout in 2010 was, I think, 4.9 million voters. Now we're at 4.6 million. So they were supposed to increase turnout. Um, they were bragging as early as a couple of days ago that their turnout. They were getting their people to the polls. Um, they were talking about 28,000 volunteers on the ground. 33, and, you know, or 33. Then 30, it 33,000, rival, rivaling what Obama did nationally in terms of ground game. Right. And, and you know, I, I remember 2010 as a huge wave election. It was the supermajority that was ushered in. Um, there were a lot of Democrats that fell that nobody saw coming. More than, more than happened last yeah. night. Um, this, you know, when I walked into uh, the victory party last night, the first thing I heard was Ken Herman say, this is a good night for Bill White. Um, and I think that Bill White, you know, you have to ask yourself in, in moments like these, do candidates matter? Does the effort that, yeah. that you put into it matter? Um, and I think it does. Now, they, they weren't going to win, okay? That, that's clear. The Democrats were not going to win this. But could they have made it closer? 
I mean, Bill White made it closer at a time when it was a horrible, the Tea Party year, it was a horrible year for Democrats. So I think, you you know, you have to assess some blame here. You say Democrats were not going to win. And after an election, everybody's a genius, right? But Ross, you know, the fact is we in the press and others around Texas did talk about this race early on as being legitimately competitive. How early on are you talking about Huh? How early on are you talking well, about? Well, I mean, I think the analogy Like nobody's is, been talking about it like it's a close race well, for months. I didn't say close. I said competitive. The analogy you made yesterday in the newsroom was to Hutchison and Perry. Right. How back, back in the day we thought Hutchison and Perry was going to be the heavyweight fight we've been waiting it for It looked for like for a great fight card in the hype. I mean, and it looked like right. one of those things where if the Democrats were going to do this, they had, after that filibuster performance, they had a candidate. And you remember there was this long search, kind of long walk through the desert right. to find a candidate and talk to the Castro brothers. And they were kind of like, ah, oh, not at this time. And Anise Parker was not this year. And all of the Democratic farm team was sort of like, you know, I think I'm going to wait a little while. Because those guys can read tea leaves. And, and then Wendy Davis and Letitia Vandepute sort of came to the fore, and now they have a candidate. And the prospect of a race, I think everybody kind of looked at it and went, well, you know, maybe at least they have candidates now. The other thing is everybody got this great sort of fake in 2008 in the Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton because they saw what Texas might look out look like if Texans turned out to vote. They got a big contest. It came to the state. The Democratic turnout, my numbers are going to be wrong, but the Democratic turnout was about 2.4 times normal. The Republican turnout was one and a half times normal just because the Democrats were so exciting. And everybody saw this big giant thing and kind of went, wow, what if everybody voted? I had friends in places like Circle C and Plano and places like that going, wow, I went to a Democratic thing. I didn't even know there were other Democrats in my neighborhood. So there was this sort of bubble around that. There was the possibility of a candidate. Greg Abbott, whatever else you might say about him, is not a charismatic politician. And so you looked at it, and, you, and there was you know, a thought early on, maybe a Wendy Davis or someone who is a charismatic politician. Maybe if you introduce some Elvis into this race, you got a little something. We didn't introduce any Elvis into the race. So I think a lot of those things that looked possible at one time pretty quickly fell away. We don't only put these things on at the Austin Club. In April, if we go back a bit, we had a joint show with the Slate Political Gap Fest at Schultz Garden. Emily and I joined there, David Plotz and John Dickerson on stage. Here's David kicking off our discussion of Rick Perry, Ted Cruz, and their presidential ambitions. Somewhere not far from here, Rick Perry is sitting in a room writing over and over again, President Rick Perry, (laughs) President Perry, President R. Perry, a little heart over the eye. Yeah, there's a heart over the eye. So could America be so lucky as to have not one but two candidates for president in the Republican primary in 2016, Ted Cruz and Rick Perry? Is that going to happen, Emily? Only if the Texas Tribune is very, very lucky. <laughs> Do you think that... But, uh, yes. Uh, in fact, I think it's. I think it is likely that we have both of those fellows, Rick Perry and Ted Cruz, running for president. I mean, they are both clearly thinking about it in a, a great deal. You know, Rick Perry has basically his crew in place. He's been all over the country nationally promoting the Texas Miracle, which is another word for promoting Rick Perry. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you also have Ted Cruz, who basically, like, cannot stay out of New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina. Clearly, both of these guys think it might be their chance. And so looking at, looking at both of them, Reeve, if you had to guess which one's going to be the stronger 
candidate in 2016 for president, who would you pick? I would tend to go with Perry because he has the benefit of low expectations now. <laughs> Which is, no, I'm totally serious. You know, he, he comes in, uh, everyone sort of thinks he can't string a sentence together. He has some new glasses that make him look very intelligent and fashionable. <laughs> and he starts, not, not just sentences, but because he's been going on cable news every day since he lost the presidency... He's gotten some practice, which he didn't have before. He's been thinking about this now for years before he didn't prepare really at all. And so he can come in and start doing paragraphs, and people will be blown away and think, maybe, maybe we were wrong about this guy. And if you, like, if you watch that, the Mitt documentary that was on Netflix, you had that line where his son said, yeah, we always go with just the next old guy in line, and that's you now. Cut to Mitt Romney's the nominee. Rick Perry sort of fits the bill for the next old guy in line. I, don't, I mean, there are others that might also fit that bill, but he has the, the hair and the glasses to, to rock it. John, do you think of the, of the two of them as a national candidate, you think Perry's stronger than Cruz? He definitely does look the, look the part. I think um, there are a couple of early tests. One will be money, because what he's doing now is he's going around, you know, advertising for Texas, but as Emily said, what it's he does... another fucking ad. So... <laughs> They of course, we up on your microphones. Of course, we a huge failure is that we didn't we didn't calculate it in David's dire fear of ants. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you know he's going around promoting Texas, but he's also having meeting with lots of bundlers and people who can raise money for him. And they're the first hurdle to say, hey, he can string sentences together. He's got it. And he raised great eighteen million dollars in that first burst when he first ran. So that's a benchmark. Can he raise that that money again? Cruz has the opposite problem, or he, he has no infrastructure and doesn't have Perry's interest in building it in terms of raising money, but he has the grassroots, and he has, he's more popular in Texas now, right, than Perry he's by had, a long shot. He's almost like a ticket to winning your primary at this point. If oh, you yeah. say, Cruz is my friend, and Cruz says, yes, Also, you're in. Yeah, if you look at the polling numbers, you know, in side-by-sides between Perry and Cruz in Texas for who you'd like to see run for president, it's, you know, not even a comparison. So, but Cruz, Cruz is, Cruz's big benefit is that he has the grassroots. The problem is that it's just unfathomable to think that Republicans would pick a freshman senator who's accomplished nothing, who's very good at speaking, to be president. Who wasn't born in this country. Who wasn't born in this country, yeah. It's just, I mean, I, it's just, you just, there is always a, there's a Republican bias for governors, and as there kind of should be, because, you know, governors have to make decisions. Governors have to balance and deal with budgets. They have to actually do things other than just give speeches. And... That's why, you know, Perry's... But the problem there is he's got competition from Jeb Bush and Walker and, and also maybe Chris Christie. So, so John and I are in Washington, and in Washington, the main memory of Rick Perry is, of course, this disastrous 2012 campaign, and, the, and Ted Cruz, it's mostly like this guy is really full of himself, he likes to talk, and he just makes trouble. So what is it that you can tell a national audience about Perry and Cruz that they don't really get now? Like, we, why should we take... Rick Perry seriously. Let me start with why you should take Ted Cruz seriously, because there are two really important things to know about Ted Cruz. Uh, the first is that he is whip smart. I mean, scary smart. The guy never missteps. He never misspeaks. That's a pretty important trait when you're running for a seat where everybody accuses you of flip-flopping all the time. The other thing about the guy is on that flip-flopping point is that he says the exact same lines almost down to the word every single time he speaks. There is not an opportunity for that guy to flip-flop because he almost is reading from a script every time he speaks. So he's smart, scary smart. 
You know, Rick Perry... This I think, is going to be a nice contrast. Yeah, Rick Perry... Right. Here I go. Rick Perry is a humbled candidate, if he is indeed a candidate. I mean, I think what you saw that was really telling, he went on Jimmy Kimmel during South by Southwest. I don't know if anybody was in that audience. He walked into a, a totally a mean crowd, an angry crowd. People were booing him when he walked on stage. And he walked in there, he joked around with Jimmy Kimmel, he made a bunch of jokes, he was humbled, he was sort of coy, he had the cute glasses, and suddenly the whole audience was basically eating out of his hand and laughing, and he was the sort of moderate Republican candidate, not the super scary far-right candidate. I think there's an opportunity there. Right. You know, uh, Cruz would do much better on the SAT, but the, the chance that Cruz would have a better chance at winning over this audience, Rick Perry would have, do much better in a crowd, in the retail politics part of it. And that's, you know, the problem is that his hurdle is not with the retail part. His hurdle for Republicans is the first debate performance. Do you think that Perry is a strong candidate? Do you think in that field that exists that he is he's as strong as a Rubio or a Scott Walker or a Chris Christie or Jeb Bush? If he is strong, he is strong because he's done it before. And he knows what it's like. And, and I mean, he... Remember, he had, a, he had campaigned and been really successful in a very big, powerful state full of intelligent people, most of whom are listening. Um, you know, he, had, he was a good politician. He wasn't just some guy who had won in one race in a tiny little state. And he got destroyed by the process. And the process was kind of wacky last time, but it's not going to get any more intelligent this time. And if you've been through it once, you know why it's crazy. It's the reason he's going out and doing this kind of walking tour, getting his kind of legs under him for the actual campaign. If you've never done that before, the the advantages of having done it before are really big, and that's a big advantage he has. So, Reeve, we had um, America, Americans, you may remember that for eight years we had a Texas governor as president, George W. Bush. How would a Cruz or Perry presidency, should it happen, bring Texas to Washington differently than Bush did? Or would it be, would it be the, essentially the same thing as Bush was, or is it, are they radically different in how they would govern? You know, I, I would imagine that Cruz would certainly be markedly different, because I think he has more confidence in himself, and, and Bush had more confidence in, in advisors and, and sort of, uh, you know, Perry, it's hard to tell, because now he sort of sets up as, as the Bush-like figure in Texas, which is weird, because he was sort of like the oh, we're moving to the right. Now we have Perry instead of Bush, who was this moderate, nice, friendly, affable man. Uh, now Perry's in that role with Cruz is over here, the, sort of the hardliner. So I don't know. I mean, I know for this audience, you know, I think that you heard a lot of boos when Perry's name first came up. But I think for this audience, Perry would probably be a great president for them in that, if anything, his, one of his biggest legacies here in Texas will be funneling money to Texas A&M and his friends and appointments to his friends. And he does that so masterfully and works that system sort of just to move resources around to the things he supports. Can, I think he would be great for Texas. Can you, one of you guys run us through the, uh, what's going to happen with this um, grand jury that's meeting and looking into his potential abusive, question. yeah. So you, you no, give I was us, just going to oh, say, uh, so, uh, <laughs> the backstory on this is that, the, we do as, it as many of you here know, uh, the district attorney went to jail for a drunken driving arrest, uh, and the district attorney's office in Austin oversees something called the Public Integrity Unit, which happens to basically be the uh, branch that uh, in, involves sort of corruption investigations into state officials. So Rick Perry had uh, not so kindly asked this DA to step down. She declined, and in the end, he ended up vetoing funding for this public integrity unit because she wouldn't step down. 
So now a grand jury is investigating whether the governor violated any laws either before, during, or after this veto by trying to convince her very aggressively to uh, resign her seat. And so there's a grand jury has been convened uh, that will sort of see if this is political coercion, basically. Uh, I think it's a hard sell from a public perception standpoint as a real issue. You know, there's been some questions, will this be his sort of bridge gate? Will it be like Chris Christie will take him out? But I think, I mean, if you, like I was watching... Um, Steve Kornacki on MSNBC did like a, a bit about it. And the B-roll for the Chris Christie stuff is traffic. It's people sitting in traffic and you can instantly in your living room think, that is horrible that he inflicted that on people. The B-roll for this is the dash cam and the jail camera of the DA drunk out of her mind uh, with a spit mask on. Yes! Yeah. This is, every time this story's been told to me in the last three days I've been here, spit mask comes very prominently in the... I think spit mask is a real help to Perry in this case. Yeah, and I just think I just think if that is the image you have in your head, it doesn't matter how uh, much of a jerk he was in convince in, in trying to push her out. People see here's the here's the main the crime fighter in town with a spit mask on. This no. doesn't seem like a big right. issue. Why wouldn't the governor yeah. try right. to her? And in a primary context, any candidate who wants to make this you know, well, there were grand jury. There was a grand jury impaneled governor. Googling uh, spitmaster. He uh, <laughs> uh, he would just say he would just go back to the underlying crime. Right. Uh, you know what I love, by the way, is your last governor to be impeached, James Ferguson, 1914, gets impeached because he tries to zero out the budget for the University of Texas. Same thing. So then, Ma <laughs> Ferguson, his wife, gets the job after him. I mean, where would this happen where the wife of an impeached top official would then take that official's job as, like, governor or president? I mean, where would that happen? We're a family value state. (laughs) And in Ma's defense, she did get reelected. Yes, two terms. So I think... Hillary's got... um, It's impeachment of of your husband is not an impediment to high office. In September, we also did our annual live show at the Texas Tribune Festival. In this clip, KUT's Ben Philpott and I talked to State Representatives Donna Howard and Jason Vialba about the coming legislative session in KUT's Studio 1A. I want to say that uh, when I was talking with some media friends of y'all over at the uh, Trib Fest earlier, I said I'm a little nervous about, you know, being here and keeping up with the witty repartee of this group. And they said, well, isn't Ben Philpott going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> and, and at this point, you must be pretty comfortable. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I just want to sing along with this band a little bit longer. That was yeah, great. Yeah. Woo, yeah. I got my vocal chops going now. We've got, I think we have to figure out a way to have a band at every Tribcast. We might get more people listening. We might know. do better on the house well, floor, too. I think, well, I think Representative Vialba just volunteered to be the house band for the Tribcast. I'm in. Out. Count me in. All right, so, so we, we're done after this. After this panel, and a couple more songs, I think, then we are done with the Texas Tribune Festival 2014. That means the only thing you guys really have to worry about now is the 84th legislative session, which starts <laughs> yeah. in January of 2015. Um, how's that going to go? Is it going to be uh, just easy breezy, pass a budget, go home? What are you guys expecting? <laughs> Boy, uh, I think we've got our hands full this session coming up. You know, the tenor of the Senate and the House has changed. I think you're going to see a much more conservative Senate than we've seen before. Probably the most conservative Senate that we've seen in Texas, probably in a generation. So I think that really shades what kind of legislation comes and originates from the Senate. And then over in the House, I think the composition is relatively the same. You won't see much change in that body. But if you listen to the remarks yesterday of Speaker Strauss, I think we're looking 
looking at a, a different type of session than we had last time. We we called the last session the Kumbaya session, the session of the purple, uh, where we all joined together and sort of got things done in an efficient manner. But I think coming up, uh, it's going to be a, a bit of a battle. Like there's going to be some controversial issues that arise. Uh, I look forward to it. You know, that's part of the conversation that we have. Um, but in the end, I know that Representative Howard and I will work together to advance the cause of uh, the great state of Texas. Wow. Yeah, we will. And we both wore our cowboy boots today. Right. So uh, that, that's requisite in the, in the legislature. Um, yeah, I, I think we all know that the House is going to be uh, a very similar structure in terms of how we're made up, I think, to, no matter how the elections go. Uh, the big change is going to be in the Senate, which, as Jason has said, is going to be much more conservative. And depending on what they do with the two-thirds rule, um, we are anticipating there could be some um, blockage, if you will, on that side, or there could be some really ramming something through, just depending on how that goes. And contrary to what a lot of people think normally happens, in this case, the, uh, the House members are going to be the grown-ups, I think. And we're going to be wanting to focus on those issues that really affect the lives of everyday Texans, like we did in the, in the kumbaya session of last time before we got to the summer, which was definitely well, not kumbaya. The kumbaya session sure, sure seemed to end in a pretty yeah. uh, dramatic fight. Yeah. Kumbaya but, regular session. Yeah, but, you know, part of that was, I think, the leadership of the House, which was saying, let's focus on those things that make a difference in Texans' lives. Let's focus on investing in infrastructure and making sure we're taking care of water and roads and looking at, at restoring some of the cuts anyway, to public education and higher education. Those are the things that matter. The social divisive wedge issues were not brought up during the regular session purposefully until they got brought up in the called special sessions. And, you know, I mean, certainly I would say that was for political purposes, uh, for a platform. I, I, will, I will say, though, in defense of my conservative brothers and sisters in the Republican Party, look, the people have spoken. We have moved to the right because the people of the state have, have voted that way. So the people that we are seeing newly in the Senate are, are of a much cons- more conservative tenor because the people have spoken. And so we can't just immediately disregard that and, and accept that you know we're going to push away some of these more controversial issues. Conservatives have spoken. Conservatives have won this body. And they they're deserving of uh, pushing forward some legislation that they think is important. So I, I respect that and appreciate that on our side. I'll fight for conservative causes. I know it might lead to some more uh, uh, back and forth, but that's part of where we are in the state today. Until uh, folks that are differently aligned uh, on the Republican side move forward and vote en masse, I just don't think you're going to see much of a change in the way the direction we're going. Well, is there is there a... Is there any truth to the concern that some conservative business groups have even had that the um, that the legislature has become so conservative that you're you're going to see uh, maybe more problems getting things like water uh, uh, water tra- yeah money for water money for transportation any of these infrastructure projects going forward because while yes there was water uh, that amendment passed or the bill passed the amendments coming up, I guess, for transportation this fall. Um, but everyone has said that's just a, a starting block. There needs to be more done. Some business groups have come out and said we're concerned that the makeup of the Senate uh, uh, will maybe lead to problems getting those more stuff, uh, more infrastructure done. 
It'll color the debate, no question, right? I mean, when you have the libertarian wing of the Republican Party moving forward suggesting that these kinds of issues aren't as important as some of the more controversial issues, it definitely will color that discussion. But I think in the end, uh, again, my conservative brothers and sisters on the, on the, in the Senate are focused on issues that truly matter to all Texans. And so we will get more transportation uh, done this year. We'll, we'll move forward with water. Uh, it'll be a different kind of analysis and a different, we'll get there differently, but I think we're ultimately going to get there. Does it make it harder when there's, since we're expecting a decent amount of money to be on hand this time, does that make it harder or easier to have these discussions when there's money to be spent? I think a lot of times people say that makes it harder, um, but I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. The fact is, though, that uh, you know we have not fully funded a lot of our budget anyway. We've, we had a panel on the TripFest about uh, transparency in the budget process. And the fact is that we do have a balanced budget, as we're required to do by our Constitution, but it's balanced on paper. And it's balanced with the reliance on, at this, in this particular budget, $4.7 billion of funds that have, were collected for one purpose but were not appropriated in order to certify and balance the budget, as well as deferring final payments, uh, pushing off the full cost of Medicaid, those kinds of things. So you know, I, I have an issue with those that uh, want to shrink it more and say that we don't need to invest more in it when we've not even fully funded what the services are that we're supposed to be providing right now. And my concern is that even though we have more money, a lot of the talk that seems to be rising to the surface is let's give that money back. You know, we're, we're, already, uh, we're already going to be giving a, a little bit of a rate reduction in the margin tax. Uh, based on some legislation from last session, when that has never fully funded the property tax swap of 2006. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be difficult, but uh, I'm hoping that we can have some really reasonable discussion about this and actually fund what we currently have in place, as well as look at how we're going to accommodate the growth of this state. And with the 140 days that we're given, we're also going to have to deal with public school finance, this sector. So we just had a, a case where it said we have a situation where our public school finance system is not uh, funded. And that's likely going to be appealed. But if we do not get there on appeal, look, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to fund our public education system. That, in addition to the issues that Representative Howard mentions, are going to be a heavy lift uh, for this legislative session. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but, you know, we've got our work cut out for us. What, what about uh, one issue that came up earlier this morning uh, during the conversation that Evan Smith had with Rick Perry uh, was the, the notion of in-state tuition for undocumented individuals, which seems to be sort of an interesting pressure point, maybe mostly on the conservative side, because obviously that's something that Perry signed in 2001, and then they tweaked it later and he signed it again. Um, but it's also something that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has said and has been saying for years that he would like to see done away with. I mean, is that the kind of thing that we might see rammed through in the, the new Senate, or or will that likely use, survive? I don't want to use the word rammed through. I think the Senate has a different perspective, or the coming Senate will have a different perspective on that issue. If you've listened to uh, Greg Abbott talk about this, he says that this uh, legislation is, is flawed, but can be amended and changed to make it more effective and applicable to where we are today. I, you heard that yesterday all too, from, as well from George P. Bush. I think there's unquestionably coming uh, some movement around that, whether or not it can 
completely goes away or stays is a question that we'll, we'll answer in the session. I sense that there is a push to at least take it back a little bit. Um, and even though people like Governor Perry, who've supported it, and other conservatives and business groups that you mentioned are in favor of that, I think there is a, an overwhelming conservative uh, force that is moving towards the direction of, of at least cutting that back or making it tighter thresholds or, or changing it in a way that uh, is different than what it is today. Now, you went around the state talking to different Republican groups, though, about the idea of uh, Republicans being more open to Hispanics, Hispanic voters. Does that fall in? I mean, I would assume that that's one of those areas that you're like, look, we can have a well thought out and and just a gentle discussion on this, but we don't need to use this as something that might you know draw a wedge between us and it's one of those issues that is very complex. When you talk to the Hispanic community about this, unquestionably people have come forward and say they're in favor of you know, tuition subsidies for the undocumented residents or the children of undocumented residents. But I can tell you the way I describe that issue is to talk about how we live in a state of limited resources. If we didn't have these limitations that we have to fully fund public education and all the other f- underfunded programs that we have, it might be easier to say that we can provide resources resources for undocumented, the children of undocumented residences. But I think because we have limited resources, we really do have to carefully look at uh, what we do with our, our unre- undocumented resident population. And so I've actually come out in favor of, if it were to be put to the floor, of being in favor of eliminating the program until we have resources that can be able to do it. I think the way we need to talk about it is, is in a way where we can articulate why we believe what we believe rather rather than making it such a divisive wedge issue. Well, I have to say, you know, this limited resources thing, that that is absolutely uh, a decision that this state has made in terms of being uh, low taxes, limited services. We don't have to make that choice, but that has been historically what we've done. We do have choices uh, to move beyond that and actually increase the uh, resources that we have. And and in fact, our economy is doing well right now. It's an absolutely opportune time for us to be investing in those things like making sure that our students are properly educated, that we have that educated workforce pipeline to continue uh, the economic development that we're realizing. And, you know, uh, we hear mixed things about how much we can expect this economy to continue. It's a volatile industry. But the fact is that not only uh, do we have uh, the industry thriving right now, we know that there's been uh, resources discovered in the West Texas that they're looking at how do they access those. So regardless of what happens to this particular phase of the, of the industry, we know there's more on the horizon. So the fact is, Texas, for whatever reason, I know some people say it's because God loves us, but for whatever reason, Texas is blessed with abundant natural resources that has allowed us to not be a third world country, basically. Uh, and we need to take advantage of those resources and go out there and make sure that Texans have what they need to continue to be success- successful and move forward. If we don't, I find that to be the height of irresponsibility. But in in a counter argument, I mean, Texas is blessed and we have done very well. But the Texas miracle is largely predicated on this concept that Governor Perry pushes, that we are a low tax, low services state. And because of that, we have we are the economic engine for the country, you know, the top economy. And it's because we've taken this approach that says if you earn your resources, you keep them. 
right? And we are going to provide services for a safety net, but not much more than that. That's just how our forefathers in the Constitution of Texas said that we would operate. And it's really, I think, the reason we are so economically healthy uh, vis-a-vis the other 50 states like California and New York, who do provide you know a significantly larger level of services, but yet aren't nearly as economically healthy as we are. Well, wait, wait, we I'm take- sorry, I have oh, to no. say more. <laughs> Y'all have gotten us going here. Uh, we are an inter- interdependent society, though, and the, the wealth and prosperity of, of any group is dependent upon the efforts of many more that contribute to that. And if we want to keep that Texas miracle alive, if we want to keep it alive, we've got to invest in those things that will help us move forward. And that means all of that growth and all of those good things that have happened. And the Texas miracle will not be a Texas miracle if we don't take care of the services and provide the services and the infrastructure to support it moving forward. So, I mean, I think we're talking the same thing to a certain extent, Jason, but I think that, that, that we've got to widen our, our perspective on it. Well, well just uh, so I think that is sort of the big conversation that will be happening this <laughs> session, right? Uh, is, right it, is it possible? I mean, you mentioned the, the, you know, not to discount the Kumbaya regular session, but obviously there was the issue of abortion that really sort of threw things off the rail in the special session. Has that issue been put to bed, or are you expecting to be fighting over further restrictions if there are any more to make in the 2015 session? And could that sort of t- once again distract from sort of the big fundamental issue of how to spend the resources that you're talking about right now you looking at me you go first <laughs> one, well i sat one, on a, two, three. i sat on the panel at the <laughs> trip fest where i heard some things that uh were said by uh, a, a, a future colleague that's going to be coming in about her desire to offer more legislation to put further restrictions on access to abortion so if that's a prelude of what might happen, then I think, yes, we can expect to have some of those things at least be attempted to be brought up. I think part of what happens when, when you uh, are in a leadership role in the House, it, which I'm not in, but from what I understand, uh, being in the minority party. <laughs> I know how you feel that, at the Tribune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that there are efforts to um, manage the flow of legislation on the House floor. And uh, I think that's one, one of the reasons we had the Kumbaya session, because the leadership did a good job of managing the flow of legislation on the House floor. So we were focused on those things we need to be focused on. Whether that will happen this next time, I think, is part of the issue here. Can we remain focused on the kinds of things that we need to be focused on, like education and infrastructure, or will we be sidetracked? All right. And I think we largely agree. We are speaking the same language. We're both focused and motivated on what makes Texas bigger and better and stronger. But, you know, I feel a lot like Representative Howard in the sense that we've got 140 days every other year, and we have to deal with the issues that truly impact everybody in this room, water, education, transportation, those kinds of issues. And if we get bogged down with issues that are divisive or controversial, we, we spend cycles days going through issues that only affect the tiny sliver of the population. So while I'm strongly pro-life um, and voted strongly in favor of, of HB2 and, and pr- supported it, I, I think going forward, if we can focus on transportation and water and public education, I think that's better for the state than focusing on issues that may be deemed by some uh, to be more controversial. If you've ever been to the Tribune Fest taping, you know that it comes with a live band. This year, we were very excited to be joined by the Jason Roberts Band. We're going to play a song for you that was cut from the initial release of that episode for time. But before we do that, we'd like to encourage you to send any questions or comments to tribcast at texastribune.org. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our theme song. 
And we'd like to encourage you to come check us out, not just where you can find us online, like iTunes and SoundCloud or our website, texastribune.org, but also at one of our live shows. We hope to see you in 2015. In the meantime, here's the Jason Roberts Band to play us out. Speaking of Texas, here is something uniquely Texas. The San Antonio Rose. One, two, three.
Thank you so much.